Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. Tonight's sermon comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 21. If you uh, have your Bibles, I invite you to open up your copies of God's Word to 1 Samuel chapter 1 and follow along with me as I read it aloud. Hear now the reading of God's Holy Word. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter, and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you, and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread, or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly, women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence which is removed from from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then you have... Then have you not a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his tens of thousands? And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Thus says the word of the Lord. I'd like to take this opportunity tonight to share with you some of the struggles of a newbie preacher. I confess that after reading over tonight's passage a few times in the beginning of my preparation for this sermon, I became a little distressed and a little disheartened because I was, I was distressed because I was struggling 
to see what was here for the spiritual edification of God's people today. You see, it wasn't obvious to me what I should preach on from this text. I mean, at first glance, there just doesn't seem to be anything that significant about this passage. It seems to be just one more account of King David's life. One more story about him running away from King Saul. And to make matters worse, there doesn't seem to be any kind of redeeming message in this chapter. In fact, when you read it, all you are left with is a bunch of questions. Like, where in the world is Nob? Why is Ahimelech the priest even there? Exactly who is Ahimelech, and why does he tremble when he greets David? Why does David lie to Ahimelech the priest? How is it okay for David to eat the bread of presence? And who is Doeg the Edomite, and why is he mentioned here at all? And where is Gath, and why does David flee there? These were just some of the questions that I was pondering as I was preparing for this sermon. And in a lot of ways, 1 Samuel 21 feels a little bit like one of those frustrating episodes in a TV series in which nothing really seems to happen. The overall plot of the show hasn't been developed, and you are left, and what all you are left with at the end is more questions. And what's even worse, the moral status of our beloved main character, King David, is left in serious question. I mean, David lies to a priest. He eats the Lord's holy bread. And then he throws away any sense of dignity that he might have left by making himself look insane in front of his adversaries. You're almost kind of embarrassed for Israel that this is their future king. So the question is, how do we make sense of this chapter? Where do we begin? Well, I think we need to begin by looking at the big picture. You see, sometimes it is so easy to get caught up in the details of the story that we end up missing the forest for the trees. And with that being said, I believe that there are four, four broad observations that we can make about this chapter that help, might help us shed some light on it. And they actually, surprisingly, paint David in a better light when we do this. The first broad observation we can make is that God's chosen king, that's David, is being persecuted. The second observation is that God's chosen king seeks the Lord's wisdom. So the Lord's chosen king is persecuted. The Lord's chosen king seeks wisdom. Third, and the third observation is that God's chosen king depends on the Lord's provisions. And then the fourth and final observation we can make is that God's chosen king, in the end, fails, fails to trust in the Lord. Now, after we consider each of these observations, I believe we will have a greater, a greater appreciation for God's chosen king and a better sense for how the Lord calls us to live in times of persecution and suffering. Let's now consider the first observation, which is 
God's chosen king, King David, is being persecuted. At the end of the previous chapter, David had just found out from his best friend, Jonathan, that Jonathan's father, King Saul, was trying to kill him. As a result, David now has to go on the run. He has to leave all that he has behind him, including friends and family, in order to escape with his life. And what makes this so tragic for David is that Saul's persecution of him is completely, completely unjustified. Not only was David Saul's son-in-law, but chapter 22 tells us there wasn't a more faithful servant to Saul than David in all of Israel. David had been the commander of Saul's armies and had fought and bled for Saul on many occasions. And now, what does he get from all of his hard work, for all of his hard work and faithfulness? He gets a death sentence, a death sentence from his own father-in-law of all people. You can only imagine how hurtful and discouraging this must have been for David. On top of that, David must have been thoroughly confused. I mean, it was only back in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel that we read about David being anointed as God's chosen king over Israel. I don't know about you, but being betrayed and running for one's life doesn't seem like a very doesn't seem very fitting for someone who's just been appointed king. David surely must have been wondering what God was up to. And don't we wonder the same thing when we are faced with our own trials? Unjust persecution and suffering doesn't seem very fitting for a people who are called to be God's chosen heirs who will one day rule alongside him in glory for all eternity. In such difficult circumstances, we might be tempted to doubt God's plan for our lives. We may even start to wonder if God was really for us in the first place. But we need to remember that in our passage, David is not on the run because God had abandoned him. Rather, David was on the run because God had chosen him and had decided to greatly bless him. As a result, evil men like Saul took notice and became jealous. That's the reason for David's predicament. Something similar happened to Job. Job was afflicted by the devil because God had chosen him and greatly blessed him. And when that happened, Satan took notice and attacked. The same is the case for God's people today. Oftentimes, God's people are unjustly persecuted and afflicted because, precisely because God has chosen them, because he has blessed them and looked upon them with favor. As a result, the world hates them for it. Just listen to Christ's own words from John chapter 15, where he says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me 
before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now the point to take away from this first observation is that just as God had chosen David to reign over Israel as he now just as God had chosen David to reign over Israel he has now chosen us to reign alongside King Jesus in glory therefore we must not be surprised when the hour of persecution and affliction falls upon us furthermore we need to remember that the persecu- that persecution is not the result of God's abandonment or rejection, but rather the result of his love and his election. So the question then becomes, well, if that is indeed the case, how are we as God's people supposed to live in such difficult times? How are we called to respond to such unjust persecution and suffering? Well, thankfully... I think David sets a a helpful example for us in our passage tonight. And this leads us to observation number two. In times of trouble, God's chosen king seeks the Lord's wisdom. The very first thing David does in his moment of unjust persecution is that he visits Ahimelech, the high priest of Israel in the city of Nob. And verses 10 and 15 in chapter 22, that's the next chapter, tell us that David went there primarily to inquire of the Lord. That is, David went to Ahimelech in order to seek the Lord's wisdom about what he should do next. Notice that David didn't get angry with God or try to blame him for his life falling apart. No, instead, he immediately sought out God's wisdom when trouble fell upon him. We get a sense of just how important the Lord's wisdom was to David when we consider from his conversation with Ahimelech that he hadn't even bothered to pack his weapons or a meal for his journey. In today's world, David would be criticized for lacking common sense for such an embarrassing mistake. It would seem obvious to us that if you are being hunted down by an army, the two things you might need most is food to keep you alive and some weapons to fight with. David, being a commander of an army himself, has neither of these things. But that's because David probably knew the truth that is reflected in Proverbs 28, verse 6, which which says... Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. He who walks in wisdom will be delivered. In other words, David knew that more than food or a sword, the answer to his persecution and suffering was the Lord's wisdom. He knew that the Lord's wisdom was the only thing that could help him navigate his way through the trials he was experiencing. 
He also was probably aware of the truth reflected in Proverbs 24, verse 14, which says that wisdom is such to your soul that if you find it, there will be a future and a hope for you. So not only can the Lord's wisdom deliver us from our trials, but it can also lead us to a more promising future. So now considering just how great the Lord's wisdom is, there can be but little wonder why, David, why it was the very first thing that David sought out in our passage. Now, just in case you're tracking with me and you're wondering why I'm quoting Proverbs when Proverbs haven't, hadn't even been written yet, because they were written by Solomon, David's son, I'm saying that David was probably familiar with this truth, but, and I, I, I couldn't help but think that who better was it, who better was in position to teach Solomon about this amazing truth about God's wisdom than David was? Uh, I think that it's more than likely that these sayings about wisdom reflected the lessons that Solomon learned from his father, King David. So that's just a side note there. But as great as wisdom is, we also know that it is not all David asked for. David did have physical needs as well, which leads us to our third observation. In times of trouble, David depended on the Lord's provisions. David depended on the Lord's provisions. We see this in our chapter when David asks for whatever bread the priest has on hand. Except the priest has nothing to offer him except for the bread of presence, which surprisingly he does end up giving to David. And what makes that so shocking is that this was holy bread. It was bread set aside for the Lord. We read about the bread of presence in the ceremonial laws of Leviticus chapter 24. These were 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel as they stand in the presence of God. And together they symbolized uh, the daily provision of God for his people. And they were to be set aside out on, and they were to be set out on a table in the holy place within the tabernacle, and per the Lord's instructions, only they were only to be eaten by the priests who served in the tabernacle. The question is then, why did Ahimelech, the priest, give what is holy and only to be eaten by the Lord's priest to David, who is not a priest? And the truth is that we just have no way of knowing why Ahimelech did what he did. But we do know that King Jesus himself used this very story to justify what his disciples were caught doing on the Sabbath day. If we turn in our Bibles to Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, we read that Jesus was going through the grain fields on the Sabbath with his disciples. And when they became hungry, they started to pluck the heads of grain and eat them. Well, when the Pharisees saw this, they accused Jesus' disciples of breaking God's law because you're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. Such a thing was forbidden. Jesus then responded by pointing them back to this very story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. 
saying, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat? The point that Jesus was making is that God's law does not contradict or oppose God's mercy. Both God's law and God's mercy are meant for the welfare and the good of God's people. I like what one commentator observes about this part of the passage. He says, God's law is not intended to ser- God's law is intended to serve not hinder the coming of God's kingdom. So in David's case, the bread of presence served the coming of God's earthly kingdom by nourishing and keeping alive its king who is going to establish it. In the same way, plucking and eating the heads of grain on the Sabbath served the coming of God's heavenly kingdom by nourishing King Jesus and his disciples who were in the process of establishing God's kingdom. Both cases, in both cases, God's law accommodates God's mercy for the furtherance of God's kingdom. The lesson to learn from this third observation is that we should all strive to be more like Ahimelech, the priest, by giving away that which belongs to God for the furtherance of his purposes. Let us dare not be like the Pharisees who in Jesus' day misapplied God's law for their own benefit, while at the same time hindering the coming of God's kingdom. And let us also strive to be more like King David, who is bold enough to ask for such a thing as even the holy bread, the bread of presence, the bread of God. I think as God's people today, we can be more timid than we ought to be in our prayer requests. But here we should follow David's example. Moving on in our text, we see that bread now is not all that David asked for. He also asked for a sword, which Ahimelech the priest did not withhold from him either. And Ahimelech did not just give him any sword, he gave him the sword of Goliath. Now the last time we heard anything about Goliath's sword or his weapons was near the end of chapter 17, where we are told that David put them in his own tent. So the fact that, they, that Goliath's sword is now found in the tabernacle, that is the Lord's tent, implies that at some point, uh, David had dedicated the spoils of his victory over Goliath to the Lord. And this would explain why the sword is there. And chances are that David knew it was there in the Lord's tent, which is why he bothered to ask a priest of all people for a sword, which might in all other circumstances seem like a silly question. But the point that we should take away from this request is that David seeks both nourishment and weapons of war from the Lord. And here we need to keep in mind that David was the most beloved man in all of Israel because he had delivered them from the hands of the Philistines. So the chances are pretty good that he could have sought help 
from a number of people in Israel who would be more likely candidates uh, to have food and weapons. But he doesn't just go to anyone. He goes to the priest of the Lord because he trusts that the, he trusts the Lord to nourish him and to defend him more than any mere man can. Can we honestly say that we have the same kind of trust in the Lord as David? In times of persecution and suffering, is the Lord the first person we run to for our nourishment and our protection? The truth is, is that the Lord should be the first person we run to because he has given us something much, much greater than he ever gave David. He's given us the spirit of Jesus Christ himself, who in John, who in John chapter 6, verse 35 says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. This saying of Jesus tells us that it is the spirit of Christ alone who can feed our souls and nourish us with the grace we need in our moments of utter desperation. We also have, on top of God's bread, that is Jesus Christ, we also have God's word, which is described in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, as a living and active, it's described as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's the kind of bread and the kind of weapons we have. Now you might say, well, what good is that to me in my moments of anguish, pain, and misery? You might be tempted to think God's word is not sufficient to meet you in your times of trouble. But that's when we need to remind ourselves of what the Apostle Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians, where he writes, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, in such moments of torment and doubt, the word of God comes clashing into our hearts, reminding us of his love for us, reminding us that we are his and that he is ours. He has not and will not ever abandon you in your hour of need. No, but in his sovereign power, according to his good pleasure, he works all things for your good, for those who put their trust and hope in him. This word of God is the very sword we need most in our hours of trial and suffering so that we can do battle with our spiritual adversaries. And this leads us to our fourth and final observation of King David, which kind of surprisingly is not as positive as the first two observations. 
The fourth and final thing we observe about King David is that he fails to trust in the Lord. In verse 10, we are told that David fled to Achish, the king of Gath. And this is the part of our passage that truly does not make any sense. Because Gath was the capital city of the Philistines, who were the mortal enemy of the Israelites. And according to chapter 17, Gath was the very city that Goliath was from. It was his hometown. And Goliath had been, as many of you know, the Philistines' greatest warrior. That is, until David killed him. And when the Israelites sang about David killing tens of thousands, many of those tens of thousands they would have been referring to were the Philistines. So by fleeing to Gath to get away from Saul, it seems like David is jumping out of the fire and into the frying pan. The question is, why on earth would David pick up Goliath's sword and then try to seek shelter from Goliath's hometown? It just doesn't make any sense. That is, unless that's what the Lord instructed him to do. After all, we do know that David went to Nob to inquire of the Lord. We also know from chapter 27 that David eventually ends up in Gath and stays there for more than an entire year, which suggests that staying in Gath was actually a part of the Lord's plan for David all along. This seemingly foolish act on David's part makes even more sense when we consider that God's ways are not our ways that they are indeed beyond our understanding. In fact, I bet many of us here tonight could actually testify that the Lord sometimes leads us where we would least suspect or want to go. And that's what I believe is happening here with David in our passage. I believe that the Lord is leading David into the hands of his enemies, not to die, but rather to bring about the destruction of his and Israel's enemies. I believe that because that is what actually ends up happening in chapters 27 and following. However, unfortunately for David, that's not what ends up happening here in our chapter. And the reason for that is because David clearly loses his nerve here in our passage. In verse 11, the servants of Achish say, Is not this David, the king of the land? Didn't they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And when David heard those words, he became fearful for his life, and so pretended to be insane. So they would not think that it was him and let him go. And we, don't, and we know that David must have been a good actor because it actually worked. They let him go. But again, unfortunately for David, this was not to his credit. Because if, if the Lord did indeed struck, instruct him to go to Gath, that means he directly disobeyed the Lord's commands by running away from Achish. 
He disobeyed because he was fearful and didn't trust that the Lord was capable of preserving his life amongst the Philistines. As a result, David's life on the run continued unnecessarily, and his suffering was prolonged. So we see in our passage that David sets both a good and bad example for us. Positively speaking, he, his example teaches us that in times of persecution and suffering, we should be diligent in seeking out the Lord's wisdom. We should always, stri- we should always be dependent on the Lord's provisions for both our nourishment and our defense. Negatively, however, David's example teaches us that we should not be distrusting of the Lord's commands. Instead of letting our fears and doubts guide us, which is what David did here in this passage, we need to be careful to follow the Lord's leading no matter where they may take us. Sometimes the Lord's leading may be uncomfortable. Sometimes it may even go, go against our natural instincts. But David's example clearly teaches us that to not follow the Lord's commands is to needlessly prolong our own suffering. So here is a lesson we learn from David summed up in one sentence. In times of trouble... God's word teaches us from the life of David that we are to seek out the Lord's wisdom, be dependent on his provisions, and to trust in his commands. That is how we are called to live in the midst of a troubled world filled with sin, suffering, and death. We are to seek the Lord's wisdom, be dependent on his provisions, and to trust in his commands. If you remember nothing else from tonight's sermon, remember to trust in God's wisdom for your life. Be dependent on his provisions for you and to trust in his commands. In closing, all of us here tonight will leave and inevitably fail in applying this simple little lesson to our lives. We will inevitably do all these things imperfectly, just like David did them. But your imperfect obedience should not be the reason for your dismay and frustration. Rather, your imperfect obedience should be the occasion for you to rejoice all the more in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the true King of Israel, who alone did these three things perfectly. Only Christ perfectly sought out God's wisdom. Only Christ perfectly depended on God's provisions. And only Christ perfectly obeyed the Lord's commands, even though they led him to a gruesome death on a cross. And he did all this for your sake and for mine, so that one day you and I could be privileged enough to be counted 
among those in his kingdom. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, for your word tonight. Thank you, Lord, that you have provided us for, with everything that we need to follow you, Lord. We ask for grace, Lord. We ask for your grace. We ask for your wisdom. We ask for your sword to come to our rescue and our defense. And we ask, O Lord, that you would give us the grace to follow your commands, no matter where they may lead us, all for the sake of the furtherance of your kingdom. And when we fail to do these things, Lord, I pray that you would help us to fall back on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who has accomplished all these things for us. Lord, we thank you so much for him. We thank you so much for all that he did for us. We love you and we love him and we ask that you would grant us the blessing we need to be faithful to you all the days of our life as we go forward from this place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.